All right, we're going to be in Acts chapter 18 today, verses 1 through 22. We're going to look at Corinth. When in Corinth preach, that is the title of the sermon, and it's taken from Paul's statement to the Corinthian church in the letter, first letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, where he told them, When I first came to you, brothers, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. His trip down to Corinth follows from his stay in Athens. Um, and his time in Corinth would prove to be fruitful. In fact, we can discern a change in Paul's ministry from this point on. Up till now, he's visited towns and he stayed maybe a few weeks, a month, a couple months at the longest. But here, Paul's going to stay in Corinth for 18 months. And that becomes somewhat of a pattern form thereafter. The ministry that Paul had in Corinth proved to be fruitful both to them, but it's also proven to be fruitful to us centuries later. Paul's letters to the Corinthians includes two of our 27 New Testament books. But in reality, there's probably four letters that Paul wrote to that church that scholars can discern. If that is the case, then Paul's correspondence would be the most prolific of any church he, would, he wrote to that we know of. He corresponded most frequently with this church. But not only is the correspondence great with Corinth, the variety of issues that Paul had to deal with this church on is greatest as well. Um, you can study his other letters, and usually there's two to three discernible things that Paul's dealing with. In Corinth, man, you just keep counting. They range from moral issues to doctrinal issues. Also, Paul had the most pastoral grief with this church. I can happily say that's not the case with you guys. But this was a church that struggled with carnality. It resembled in many, many, many ways the American church today. Paul even told them at one point in 1 Corinthians 3.1, he said, Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Not a good thing to have said about you. But Paul didn't give up on them either. He continued with them. It was a church that was characterized with blatant sin. In some cases, brothers taking each other to court and suing one another. Others not able to resolve differences. Men were still visiting the cult prostitutes of Aphrodite, as we're going to see. There were factions and divisions amongst each other. Some claimed allegiance to Paul, some to Apollos, others to Christ. There's also relational problems within couples, divorces how to deal with widows. At one point, there's even sexual sin in 1 Corinthians 5 that Paul said wasn't even practiced or named among pagans, where a mother or a son was having an affair with his stepmother. So there's also a church, besides the moral issues, that struggled doctrinally. This church practiced spiritual gifts, for instance, in a chaotic way. And that led Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 to deal with how do you, one, identify spiritual gifts, but how do we practice them when we're gathered together? Sounds familiar in our day and age, right? We're zealous for spiritual gifts, but there's also a way in practicing them. Some 
were led to question even the resurrection and whether or not it had even happened. 1 Corinthians 15, and Paul had to walk very logically through, if the resurrection did not happen, our faith is vain. It's a huge doctrinal issue to nail down. They didn't understand the table of communion and partaking of communion. They, they partook in a profane way so that some of them were dying, 1 Corinthians 11. It was a church that had to be instructed on giving and tithing with a proper attitude of heart. Moreover, they were a church that was influenced by false super apostles, as Paul would call them, leading them at some point to question the authority and rightful apostleship of Paul himself. Now imagine the dagger in his heart. He became their father in the faith, and now they're questioning whether he's even an apostle with any authority at all. But despite all these issues, as numerous and varied as they are, we have in Paul's letters to this church some of the greatest and most treasured of all scriptures. Now pair that together and let that sink in. As great and numerous as the moral and doctrinal issues are to the Corinthian church, we have in his letters to them some of the greatest treasures of scripture. Let me read a few for you. 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. You can take 1 Corinthians 13, the entire chapter, verse 1, I'll read for you. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. One of the most beautiful chapters ever written. And one of the clearest exposition on what Christian love is. Paul gave us the beautiful explanations of the use of Christian freedom and love when Paul talked about eating meat sacrificed to idols. And we, we have readily identified with that issue. Can we drink alcohol, for instance? It's a huge topic in the church today. And Paul said, it's not about your freedom to do this or that. Are you loving your brother? That's the issue. So with his characteristic clarity, he cuts through and points us to a higher plane of thinking and living. As I mentioned just a minute ago, 1 Corinthians 15 gives us one of the most important chapters in all of the Bible. In fact, in the beginning of it, Paul lays out the legal list of who were witnesses to the resurrected Christ. And it was a document structured in such a way that it could be presented in court. And not only that, he quotes the earliest known scriptural saying making its way through the church. But 1 Corinthians 15, without that chapter... We're at a loss in some cases without apostolic authority explaining the necessity of the resurrection. In 2 Corinthians 12, many of you might be familiar with this chapter. It's where Paul talks about his thorn in the flesh that was given to him to keep him humble. And he, he's led to reveal to the Corinthian church a beautiful statement that was given to him originally in private. When the Lord comforted him privately, as Paul complained about this thorn in the flesh, Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul, for my power is perfected in weakness. Understand, that was a private conversation between Paul and his Lord. And because of the Corinthian church's problems, he revealed that to us. That was a private transaction. We also have the beautiful explanations of the use of Christian freedom, like I said, but Paul would go on to say with that, 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. So Corinth is a major, major book and city within New Testament history. 
And we're going to look at it this morning. Corinth itself, before we read the passage, I want to give you some background on the city. It can be boiled down into three C's, if you remember this about Corinth. One, it was cosmopolitan. That is, it had a true diversity of people as well as races. It was commercial. It was the perfect location for commerce, and it was very corrupt. To be Corinthian was synonymous with perversion. So the cosmopolitan aspect of it, let me tell you about it. There's a tremendous mixing of people here because it was a seaport. And so the demographic of Corinth was always shifting, always changing. People from all over the world would make their way to Corinth. It was on a very narrow isthmus connecting north and southern Greece. Four miles wide. So it could be accessed from every location. And it was accessed by every location. It was the major city in the Roman world in that era. Besides Rome itself. It had surpassed Athens by far. So in this sense, Corinth reflects in many, many ways for our context and and historical setting, America. I was just in Chicago, the fourth largest city in our country. And it is a true cultural melting pot, not only of races, but of cultures, of ideas, of people from many backgrounds. This would have been like Corinth in Paul's day. It was commercial. And then, like I said, it was situated on that small, narrow, four-mile-wide isthmus connecting northern and southern Greece. And so all traffic coming and going from Corinth would go there. Traffic in Greece moved from north to south, south to north, through Corinth. And commerce would, they'd land on the west coast, and they'd have slaves bring the cargo from the ships inland. They'd land on the east coast, and they'd have slaves walk two miles inland and bring the, the cargo in. That's how close it was. And it was very, very wealthy because of it. But their wealth led to much corruption and perversion. It was the center of the cult of Aphrodite, which was the Greek love goddess. The temple of Aphrodite stood about 1,500 feet above Corinth on the Acropolis. And every night, 1,000 cult prostitutes would come out of that temple and descend down into the city and practice their prostituting trade. Every night. So as a culture, they were known for their sexual perversion. Here's what this scholar R.C.H. Lenski said of Corinth. He said, Corinth was a wicked city even as larger cities of the Roman Empire went during that period. The very term Corinthian came to mean profligate. To Corinthianize meant to practice whoredom. It's not a label you would want to be given. So you can understand as Paul made his way into Corinth, the hairs on his head probably stood up. And we're going to talk about considering the dynamic that Paul entered into Corinth, because this is really what stood out to me as I studied this passage. So let's read with me Acts 18, beginning in verse 1. Paul said, or Luke writes, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. 
When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied fully with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And they opposed and reviled him. So he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. So you really need to understand Paul to understand why Luke structured this introduction to Corinth. Luke didn't focus at all on the city of Corinth itself. You notice Paul leaves Athens and went to Corinth. That's verse 1. And Luke immediately moves us into the fact that he found a Jew, verse 2, named Aquila and his wife Priscilla. To, To remind you, when Paul was chased out of Thessalonica and Berea and Philippi. He had to keep leaving members of his team behind to strengthen those churches so that by the time he got down to Athens, that great city, he was alone. And though it pained his heart, he said in his letter to Thessalonians, it was more necessary that they had his team than he did. So as a pastor, loving his people, he said, I'd gladly be separated from them if you're grounded in the faith through it. And so he was willing to be separated But moving from Athens to Corinth wasn't easier for Paul. It was more difficult. And so as he entered this city, he was still alone. And you see the beauty of the Lord here in his mercy to Paul. The first thing he is, is introduced to new team members. Because we need that. We need that as people. And God knew that. Aquila and Priscilla were both Jews. They were husband and wife who had been exiled out of Rome by Claudius. Claudius began persecuting the Jews, so they fled. They found themselves in Corinth. And they were believers. We don't know when they were converted, how they were converted, but they were believers. They also happened to share the same trade as Paul. Both were tent makers. It was customary for Jews as they were raised for the boys to learn a trade. It didn't matter if they were going into a rabbinical uh, study The boys were required to learn a trade. Paul chose tent making. So there was in every way, from the very beginning of his time in Corinth, commonality with Aquila and Priscilla. So he lived with them, he worked with them, and on the weekends every Sabbath, Paul preached in the synagogue. But I just want you to consider Paul's team as a whole and reflect a little bit before we move on and how influential and how purposeful God has been at every point in Paul's life up to this point. Remember when Paul was converted, Ananias came to him. And all the church was skeptical of his conversion except one, Barnabas. Remember that? Barnabas came to Paul's aid. And when Paul came to Jerusalem three years later, it was Barnabas who testified of Paul's conversions to the apostles because they didn't immediately receive him. It was Barnabas who started the first missionary trip with Paul. It was Barnabas who went and got Paul and began forming the church at Antioch, which became the center of Greek Christianity, Gentile Christianity. Barnabas and Paul had their split. Silas joined Paul for the second missionary journey. Then Timothy was added. Now Aquila and Priscilla. Lydia and the church at Philippi, if you remember them would come, we're going to see, and they send support for Paul and his needs while he was in Corinth. So Paul literally would not have been who he was, nor would he have had the success he did without these people. This tells me something. This has been a topic of conversations as a pastor, both in small groups, but also on pastoral circles. It was a huge topic of conversation 
at the pastoral conference I went to about the necessity of the community of faith. Because our American culture really has individualized our faith so that we don't fellowship like we used to. We don't engage in scriptural truths and theology like we used to. We don't engage in service. We don't engage in ministry with each other and to each other. But that's Christian living. And we see it demonstrated in Paul. Paul would not have been who he was, nor would he have had the success he did without these people. And so from the very beginning, God saw fit. Paul, you're in Athens alone. You're not going to endure Corinth alone. I'm bringing two people to you. There is a very real reality for pastors, missionaries, people engaged in full-time ministry of failing because of a lack of help. That's true. There's burnout. There's discouragement. There's adversities, persecutions. And unless you have a superstructure of people engaging in that with you, maybe not able to full-time, but maybe they are. You have to have something there in place. I'm convinced that there would not have been a church at Corinth without these people. And Paul knew that. It would take this group to establish the church in this megatropolis. So great and so varied as we've already seen were the issues that Paul would have had to deal with. Doctrinally, morally, philosophically, he could not do it by himself. So what does this teach us? As I said, it's God's design for the church. The church is his body. And every part of the body needs the other members. We, have, we cannot say to one member, I have no need of you. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12. The hand can't say to the foot, I don't need you. The eye can't say to the mouth, I don't need you. We do need each other. But there's an openness and reciprocation. It tells us that God is with his church to accomplish his mission. It also tells us God will provide what we need to accomplish his mission. I'm convinced that Paul needed that encouragement right then. Knowing Paul's character throughout this book, he would have gone to Corinth and he would have preached and he probably would have died preaching, even if no one came to his aid. But it would not have been his chosen method. He wanted to see a church established. He wanted the name of Christ founded there, but he needed help. God provides resources, help, and encouragement when we need it. But you know what? The opposite is true at times as well. And I'll say this is to fill your soul with this thought. God will not provide those things for seasons in your life. Because what it does is it forces you to rely on Him. Those things can become a crutch in our life. And they can forbid us from engaging in true fellowship with Jesus. And so there will be periods just like there was with Paul where no, you can go without. Why? Because it teaches you to trust me. But on the other hand, there are definite times we have to have it. And God knows those times. So you can trust him for it. But let's keep reading. So Paul was preaching to the Jews every Sabbath. In verse 6 it says, They opposed and reviled him. So he shook his garments out and he said to them, Your blood be on your own head, I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. What a statement. That's a scary statement, by the way. It's taken out of Ezekiel where, where the watchman is told, 
If I give you a warning to tell the people, watchmen, you better warn the people because if you don't warn them, their blood will be on you. But if you warn them and they refuse to heed the warning, their blood is on their own head. That's where Paul's getting that from. He saw himself as, hey, I'm in Corinth and I have a responsibility. And that responsibility is to warn the people to preach the gospel. Remember what he said to the church or to the people in Athens. He said, God is now commanding every people everywhere to repent because there will be a day that he's fixed in which he will judge the people in righteousness. To the Thessalonian church he would write, when I was there with you, you heeded my warning. You believed the gospel. And part of that presentation, Paul says, was to flee from the wrath to come. See, God has given the world a period of time where He's overlooking their sins and He's inviting all people, come, be saved. But there's going to be an end to this. And then it's too late. And that's what Paul's telling them. Your blood is now on your own heads. It's a terrifying statement. Because what it means is when they stand before the Lord in judgment, they cannot appeal to an excuse. Their blood is on their own heads. I heard... I heard clearly, and yet I reviled. That's what he's saying. So he leaves there, verse 7, and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Now his house was next door to the synagogue. Pretty cool. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So fruit is now beginning to be born. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. And do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. Verse 11. He stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God amongst them. Let me... Uh, I got my slides out of order, so I'm going to have to come back. Sorry about that. So the Lord now, one, he encourages Paul through providing Aquila and Priscilla. He also, I forgot to say this, verse 5, Silas and Timothy also arrived from Macedonia. So Paul's team is reformed. But there's still great obstacles. So the Lord says to him in a vision, verse 9, Don't be afraid. Go on speaking. Do not be silent. For I'm with you and no one will attack you or harm you. I have many in this city who are my people. So Paul turned to the Greeks mainly, though Jews were being born again as well. But it's at this point his encouragement comes. And he says that interesting statement, I have many in the city who are my people. Now obviously, as the church is, there's always doctrinal debate. But what the implication of here is the doctrine of election. Of God's choosing. God's obviously not referring to people who've already believed. He's referring to people who have yet to believe. And that's why the Lord is telling Paul to preach. And so the implication is God's election. Now I don't know how, how well you guys have studied this issue. I'm going to try and lay it out very simply and balance it for you. Because as is the history of the church, this has been a very divisive issue. It shouldn't be. But it is. There's little doubt biblically and in this context that election is preached, that it's biblical. I'm not going to attempt to affirm uh, every single point of election, but 
I do want to give you some examples. First from the Old Testament, consider this. God chose Noah. God chose Abraham. God chose Moses. God chose the nation of Israel. God chose David. God chose Samuel. And on and on and on and on. You see God working His plan. God even chooses wicked rulers to judge His own people. Nebuchadnezzar and Jeremiah. So God is sovereign in salvation. Salvation is of the Lord, Jonah said. And if God is omniscient, that is all-knowing, then He also has a choice in this. Romans 8.29, Paul wrote this, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Paul would write to Timothy, I endure all things for the sake of the elect. So over and over and over. Oh, 2 Timothy, I quoted that. 2 Timothy 2.19, you see on the screen there. That's where Paul says, the Lord knows those who are His. And there's many more passages that could talk about election. Unfortunately, many who believe and hold to that doctrine, they go to an extreme in trying to expound on it. They go to an extreme view of God's sovereignty where evangelism is no longer emphasized nor is man's responsibility to hear and believe and repent. That's what we just saw in Acts 17.30. God commands people everywhere to repent. They have a responsibility when they hear to do it. And so biblically, you balance the doctrine of election out with man's responsibility when they hear. But God knows who will believe He's chosen beforehand. He's not surprised or flabbergasted when he's rejected. In our passage, it's intended to spur on evangelism, not quench evangelism. It's because God had people in that city who still needed to hear the gospel that he told Paul, go preach. These are my people. And it's true still that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ, even for the elect. But, how do we balance this out? We balance it out with understanding the necessity of faith. The role of faith is upheld, as well as its necessity. I like what the scholar John Stott said. He said, Scripture nowhere dispels the mystery of election. Now it's important. Scripture nowhere dispels the mystery of election. And we should be aware of any who try to systematize that teaching too precisely or rigidly. It is not likely that we shall discover a simple solution to a problem which has baffled the best brains of Christendom. So here's my approach to this doctrine. So I want you to know how I approach it. I'll start with an illustration that I heard in seminary. The illustration was given where people are dying every day and they're standing before the pearly gates and on the outside of the pearly gates is written the phrase, for all who will may enter. And so they enter in and they look back at the pearly gates and on the inside of it, it says, for I have chosen you. You see, God hasn't revealed to us who the elect are. We don't know. And so what's he tell us? Preach to everyone. The gospel is for everyone. And you preach it to all, without discrimination. Election is not a doctrine that the world will ever understand. The church has a hard time understanding it. And yet we've made it a point where we split hairs. 
because we try to systematize it too greatly. The scripture holds both these points in tension. And so church, when you're dealing with deeper theological issues like this, here's my encouragement to you. Do not try to change the tension of scripture. If the scripture has it there, it's for a reason. When you lean one way too heavily, scripture's out of balance. And this is the, per- this is the perfect illustration of that. Scripture affirms man's responsibility to hear and believe. It also affirms God's choice. And it doesn't give a great detail of explanation otherwise. So what do we do? We, we hold it there. If we can't expound on it any greater than that, that's okay. We hold it in faith. And we rest in that. We don't let it divide us. It's unfortunate. If you ever study church history, two great names you'll hear is John and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield. But I don't know if many of you understood, they actually started out together, ministering together. Do you know what the issue was that split them? This issue. God still used both people greatly, but it led to their splitting and parting of ways. It's unfortunate. I'm certainly not going to get angry with you if you don't understand this issue. I don't understand much of this issue. So we don't make it an issue of conversation with the unconverted, especially. D.L. Moody, who was from Chicago, I I got to meet a lot of Moody seminarians and professors this week, which was pretty cool. He was the great evangelist. Here's what he said to the unconverted one time. He said, you have no more to do with the doctrine of election than you have with the government of China. It's classic Moody. He He was a common man. He said it very simply. So hold those two tensions of Scripture where they are. But it was an encouragement, and that's my point here, is an encouragement for Paul to preach. Paul, don't be discouraged. Don't fear. Yes, your team's here. Go on preaching. Because there will be many who believe through it. So the unholy alliance. So what happens? Verse 12. But when Gallio became proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue. They beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. The unholy alliance. We've seen this tactic before. When the Jews couldn't trip up Jesus according to their own law, what did they do? They brought him before the Roman governor Pilate. The early church, they did the same thing. When they couldn't get Peter and the apostles caught, they started appealing to the Roman government. And it worked. It worked on Paul and Philippi. Remember, they dragged him before the the Romans and they threw him in prison and he had to call them out. Is it lawful for you to do this to a Roman citizen? And they freaked out. But this is a tactic that's been used before. And it was almost used again, but in this case, Gallio had the wisdom to say, this is not my issue, you deal with it. And so he threw it back in their face. 
It's interesting, and it's a fearful thing, when religious leaders begin to appeal to governing authorities against religious sects, let alone Christian sects. It has been proven effective, and I bring it up here because I've, I've said this before the church. For us to have wisdom here, our culture, we can all tell, is, is very anti-Christian in its leaning. <coughs> I believe the day, the day is already here where, where efforts and attempts are being made to appeal to the secular authorities against us. Right? The most, famous, most recent example, the, the baker from Colorado. This is going to happen more and more and more. This is a tactic in Scripture. It's a tactic today. And so church, here's my encouragement and appeal to you. Be ready for the day when the ruling authorities do rule against us viciously. It will happen. It's just a matter of time. As the culture's conscience is hardened and as their mind is darkened, according to Romans 1, it will happen. Paul was fortunate here that it didn't. Our government, for the most part, resembles Gallio at this point more than Pilate. But that won't last. But there's something beautiful here, and I don't want you to miss it. So their attempt to appeal to Rome failed. Gallio, in verse 16, drives them out from the tribunals. So what, what do they do? They see Sosthenes, who had replaced Crispus. As the leader of the synagogue. Remember Crispus and his family had become Christians. Sosthenes was his replacement. And they beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Now here's what's beautiful about this. Was Sosthenes converted because of this? Look at 1 Corinthians 1.1 with me real quickly. Sosthenes obviously undergoes unjust treatment by his own brethren and by the Romans. We read in 1 Corinthians, remember this is where Paul is, 1-1. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Now we can't say definitely it's the same Sosthenes. I suspect it is. Remember what happened to Paul when Paul was mistreated in Philippi. The Roman jailer, when he found out that Paul and, and all those, when they could have escaped jail, they didn't. He was about to kill himself. What's the Roman jailer do to Paul's wounds? Remember, he washes his wounds. I wonder if Paul and his team saw what happened to Sosthenes and came and ministered to him as a non-believer. They washed his wounds from this. And if he was converted. Complete speculation. Take it or leave it. But it is something beautiful to consider. Very likely a way of one coming to faith. No doubt. Let's keep going. Here's a, a beautiful passage I want to end with. Verse 18. So after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers. And he set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Centria he had cut his hair, for he had been under a vow. 
And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. So when he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church there and then went down to Antioch. And that's the end of Paul's second missionary journey. And it's interesting that Paul passes very quickly through the town of Ephesus. And I ended our passage here. Because he he starts his third missionary journey going back to Ephesus. As he said, if God wills, I will come back. Because Ephesus is a major city, just like Corinth. So from uh, verse 23 through chapter 19, it's all Ephesus. So we're going to save that for next week. But I want to highlight something here. We're told in verse 18 and 19 that Paul had cut his hair because he'd been under a vow. Most likely, the vows being referred to is the Nazarite vow. You might have heard of it. It's found in number six. And it was a vow, a pledge of complete separation to God. You weren't allowed to to eat any grapes, to drink no wine. You were to separate yourself completely. You were to allow your hair to grow out. Most of these vows were taken voluntarily for a month or so. But we do have some examples. Samson, everyone's familiar with. Samuel and John the Baptist were all Nazarites for life. So Paul was keeping this vow. And when he left Corinth, he cut his hair, indicating that he's about to complete the vow. It's not yet completed. One of the requirements in number six was that upon the end of the vow... They were to cut their hair and then take that hair and present it in the temple at Jerusalem with peace offerings to God. So Paul was eager to get back there to finish his vow. But why was he taking this vow? Why was he under a vow? And it brings up some other questions. (coughs) Is Paul falling back under the law here? We know Paul is well known for having repudiated the law and living by the law. I gave several examples there. Galatians 1, Philippians 3, Colossians chapter 2. Let's turn to that one real quick. Colossians 2. He writes this in verse 20 through 23. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why... As if you were still alive in the world, you submit to regulations. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to these things that all perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. Isn't that what Paul just vowed to do though? What's going on here? Let's look at Paul's vow in context. Paul did repudiate such things in the context of the law. In other words, binding you to do it. No one has the authority to bind these on you. Paul did repudiate such things in the context of works righteousness, as we just read in Colossians. These things do not bring you salvation. They don't declare you righteous because you've done that. Religious ceremonies do do not save anybody. And we know this. But this vow was appropriate given the difficulty of the ministry in Corinth. 
The whole intent of the vow was from the heart one recognizes they need the Lord. And it's an appeal to God to be close to me, Lord. Remember Samson, as long as his hair was long, the Spirit of God was with him. That's the intent. I think Paul took up this vow voluntarily because he understood the nature of Corinth. He was alone when he entered the town. He had no money when he entered the town. He had to work as a tent maker. And it wasn't until Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Philippi, with an offering from the church. Paul references it in his works to Corinth and Philippi. It was at that point when they brought money for him that he could fully devote himself to the gospel. Let alone all the difficult things moral and doctrinal Paul had to deal with. I did say in my notes, I think Paul voluntarily took up this vow in order to draw closer to the Lord. To have greater presence in the Lord in the city of Corinth. But I followed it up saying this. I see this today. God sends his ministers who are walking most closely with him to the front of the battle. They're always going to be in the heat of it. We have military here. You understand that. You don't send your worst soldiers to the hardest battle. You send your best soldiers. Right? Paul understood being alone, the difficulty of Corinth, no funds. Lord, I need you. So he kept his vow. And we see the Lord did too, didn't he? He very quickly brings Aquila and Priscilla, Timothy and Silas. Men are born again. The church is founded. And then the Lord speaks to him in vision. I'm with you, Paul. Don't be fearful. Keep preaching. Paul kept his vow. The Lord kept his. And the church at Corinth was established. It's an amazing point to consider. In fact, it's made me think about Paul's statement that I quoted at the beginning of our sermon, 1 Corinthians 2, 1-5, where Paul says, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I wonder if that statement is in the context of this vow. Because Paul would say right after that, so that your faith may rest on the power of God and not on the wisdom of men. There's times, church, where you will be discouraged. There's going to be times of great difficulty. Just in life, let alone in ministering to the Lord. It's in those times that your faith will be exposed, the weaknesses of it, as well as the strengths. You're going to be tested, you're going to be tried. And you can respond in one of two ways. You can fall back into the flesh. Or you can do like Paul did and say, God, I want to draw closer to you. I see the weaknesses of my heart. I see the weaknesses of my faith. Instead of repelling me away, let it draw me close. As St. Augustine, one of the earliest church fathers, brilliant man, said, I fear God, therefore I run to Him. It's our response in faith to the Lord. Paul had everything when he arrived working against him. And by the time he left, the church was thriving. That can only be done in the power of God. Rather running to vices to cope with these difficulties, he chose to run to the Lord. As we've gone through in our elders meetings, the qualifications for an elder, one of those qualifications is self-control. And the idea there, we know in general what it means, but the idea is 
You don't lean on anything else besides the Lord. For instance, if I come home and, hey, my tendency is to relax and to cope with the stresses of the day, I've got to kick back and have a beer. I'm leaning on something else other than the Lord. I may have freedom to do that. And in other contexts, I can enjoy that perhaps. But as an elder, my faith must rest on Christ, not on these things. That's what self-control is. That's what we see demonstrated in Paul and his character. He chose, rather, to take the harder route, dying to self, but becoming alive in the Lord. And we see the fruit of it. It's a beautiful point to consider. He sought to be made more spiritual, more sanctified, as he lived out his faith in the flesh. And Christ met him there. I want you to turn real quickly to Psalm 61. I wonder if Paul prayed this psalm during this time that he was under this vow. And as we read it, you'll see why. Psalm 61, verses 1 through 5. Psalmist writes, Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings, for you, O God, have heard my vows. And you've given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Is that not Corinth? God, you've heard my vows, and you've given me as a heritage those who fear your name. What did the Lord tell him? Paul, I've got many who will believe, keep preaching. That's the heritage, and Paul would later say that to the Corinthian church. Are you not my glory, my joy, my crown? Because Paul was willing to sanctify himself, those people received the gospel. That's a faith worth imitating. I did have some applications (coughs) I think are interesting that extend from this. Of taking vows. Paul was not putting anybody under the law. He was using an old Jewish tradition. So what about today? What about various traditions? What about various liturgies? Should we as a church adopt such practices? I say this because it was in the text, but it was also one of the things that we talked about at this pastor's conference. And it's interesting to me. It came up in our men's small group study. What about liturgies? So I just wanted to apply a little bit. It's kind of a little rabbit for you to consider. Some of you may have grown up in church traditions that use liturgy often. Some, probably not. It might be foreign to you. And in case you missed it, we did a form of liturgy today in worship. Bible study and various spiritual disciplines can be replaced by such liturgies and traditions. And that's always the danger. The spiritual disciplines can be replaced by these outward things. Traditions and liturgies have and are often done mechanically. And so when you go to those churches, they're lifeless. And perhaps you've experienced that too. But are they bad in and of themselves? Well, Bible study, prayer, fellowship, communion... 
Baptisms, they can also become mechanical and lifeless, can't they? So do we abandon those? Obviously not. What's the issue? The issue is our heart. It's always the heart. It's our mind. It's our will. As we saw with Paul, so it is with us. Paul would never bind these kind of things on any church or individual. We are free to do them or not to do them. However, if one's conscience and heart's conviction is to do them, it can be a beautiful expression of worship, as it was with Paul. Many of these people, for instance, at the conference, who practiced these liturgies, it was a beautiful expression of their faith. And they did it lively with full conviction. It was wonderful. I'm not a liturgist, and you all know that. But it was wonderful. And it was edifying because of the heart and the worship that attended to it. Liturgies, let me tell you this, were largely tools that the ancient churches used to teach its congregants the faith because their congregants were illiterate for the most part. So they would depict the gospel in the stained glass windows. They would proclaim the statements of faith. They would confess these as a way for them to hear it, to memorize it, to know the faith. And then they would preach on it because most people couldn't then go home and read about it. So they tried to infuse as much of the teaching of the church into their worship service as they could because that was the only chance that people would have to hear it. That was how liturgies started. That's good. And I want our worship services to be infused not just with worshipful elements, but educational elements. What is it that we believe? What is it we proclaim? What is our heritage that's been passed on to us? It's important. Liturgy itself is used as a platform today still. Liturgical prayers, liturgy of the word, liturgy of sacraments. So as long as these and traditions are kept subordinate to the word in place and are practiced with a true heart of faith, they're good. So long as they are practiced from that heart. Should we adopt such practices in our church? My answer is yes and no. To some degree, we do have our own liturgical forms already. Right? We have a way that we worship. But we also need to be examining Is this facilitating worship? Is this drawing you closer to the faith? Is this teaching you about our Lord? What's the fruit that's being born from our practices? If it needs to change, it needs to change. If it doesn't, it doesn't. I do think... I want to quote C.S. Lewis here. How many of you all have heard of Screwtape Letters? Good. How many of you read the Screwtape Letters? Okay, good. <laughs> so you know Screwtape was, a, was the chief demon in the book, right? C.S. Lewis was convinced in his day that a separation was happening in the church from its historical roots and it was leading to the death of the church because we didn't know our heritage. So he put that idea in the mouth of Screwtape, the chief demon, and he says this about Satan's diabolical plan for the church. So this is Screwtape speaking. He says, Since we cannot deceive the whole human race all the time, it is most important thus to cut every generation off from all others. For where learning makes a free trade between the ages, 
there is always the danger that the characteristic errors of one generation may be corrected by the characteristic truths of another. Very good statement. I, I love this idea, and church, this is part of my own personal growth. I love this idea of the church being ancient and present. I love that. And there, I say that because, one, we're a non-denominational church. And we're a new church. And there's always a stigma about that. Hey, you're just going off and doing your own thing. And, and forget tradition. Forget history. Forget... No. That's not my heart. Even though I love being non-denominational. And I love starting fresh. I think it's needed. I'm just the opposite though. We need to listen to the voices of the past. And we need to deal with the voices of the present. We've got to meet our culture and our society where they are. And there's wisdom that needs to be had today from scholars, from pastors, from lay people engaging. But there's much wisdom to be learned from those who walk through similar things. At the conference, to sum it up, I, as I thought about this, I was kind of that oddball guy at our conference. I told you one of the reasons I went was to support the ministry that my brother and I do on eBay, where we sell all these old dead guys. And I have my table set up of all these books. And man, these scholar pastors are coming up and they're looking. Wow, these are beautiful. But you know what? Very few of them knew any of them. And I found myself, and I'm not boasting myself, but I found myself having to instruct the lead speakers, the, the breakout speakers, and who these men were. And it saddened me. They're, they're wrapped up in today's issues. Good. We also need to be familiar with our heritage. And I was the only bookseller there who had anything old. <laughs> it's okay. I loved it. But it was just a, it was a cool display of, of what they were looking at in their sessions. And here they could go into the bookstore and see it. There's present, but you also have access to your heritage. I think that's right. So where liturgy and traditions are actually having fruitful effects in a body, I'm for it. Where they're not, I'm not for it. What matters is, that, is what the Apostle Paul said, is faith working through love. Is that, is that happening in these expressions of worship? If it is, I don't want to hinder anybody from practicing it. With that, we're going to sing one more song. I'll invite the worship team up. And let me pray with you all. Father, I just thank you for the time we've had in fellowship today in worship. God, and I pray that the church has been edified. I pray that the church has been instructed, that their hearts and their minds were engaged this morning. Father, cause us to take a deeper look at our life. And Father, even perhaps as Paul did, if we recognize our greater need for you, that we would separate ourselves for you, Lord. That you would hear our vows, as the psalmist also said. May you be with us. 
that you'd help us to draw close and labor for your kingdom. That we at Waypoint in Clovis would see the heritage of people that you will give us. That we will then get to fellowship with as brothers and sisters in eternity forever. Father, you are the only king. May our allegiance, may our devotion, may our affections all be raised up to you as we sing this song. In Christ's name we pray.